Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kazesnov. We have a really interesting topic this week and one that's actually quite close to my heart as I've suffered with it personally, and that's all the problems surrounding back pain, neck pain, and so on and so forth. And my guest is an absolute expert in this field. Dr. Oliver Thompson qualified as an osteopath and from the British College of Osteopathic Medicine. He has extensive experience in treating and managing a range of painful musculoskeletal conditions, especially back pain and sciatica. He has practiced in London for over 12 years, and with his wife, Sarah, he's one of the directors of Body Matters Clinic, a multidisciplinary clinic situated just down the road from me in Belsize Park. Having a background in sports injuries, Dr. Thompson went on to complete a master's degree in sport and exercise rehabilitation and gained his PhD in osteopathy in 2013. He's an internationally renowned lecturer and researcher and has authored over 30 academic papers that have been published in peer review research journals. So Oliver, welcome and thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. So I always like to define terms right at the very beginning. So everybody sort of knows what back pain, the word means, but it, yeah. it covers a multitude of sins. So can we maybe just pick that apart a little bit so we know what we're talking about here? Sure. Um, so, so back pain in terms of location is really defined by pain in the region of the bottom of the thoracic spine, which is just below the bar, bra strap down pretty much to the, to the tailbone. So any pain in that region um, is, is categorized as back pain. Um, then within back pain, there are lots of subcategories. I, I think the, the, the one we all see most uh, commonly in, in clinical practice is non-specific back pain. So it's back pain, which is around that area. Um, and as we'll maybe talk, it's very hard to, or currently it's hard to, to really pin down a definitive cause of, of some of that pain. So. About 98% of back pain is non-specific mechanical or muscular skeletal back pain. And about 1% to 2% is back pain, which is, has a more uh, serious cause or pathological cause, which is very rare, but nonetheless still, still occurs. So the back pain that most of us are affected by is mechanical, um, very benign functional pain in the, in the, in the, the lower part of the, the back and pelvis. Right, and then presumably above these thoracic vertebrae, then starts. To so yeah, I, and so yeah, I, so yeah, I'm actually I'm, I'm I've I've slipped into into definitions. Lower back pain. So when I when we refer to lower back pain, it's, it's that area from the bra strap down, pretty much, and everything else above is thoracic pain or neck pain. Um, I think I subconsciously went into lower back pain because it's the thing which is the most um, prevalent actually. And you look at the, the literature and the the impact on society and the economy, lower back pain is the one which is which is a real problem. Yeah, I most actually, of the most of the yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say most you know lots of the risk factors around neck pain, back pain, and middle back pain. They're all very similar, so they they kind of map to one another. Right. Yeah, I was just about to say that you know I I had actually looked at some of the figures and I was, I was shocked. I mean I, I've known for a long time that that back and neck pain headache all of those sort of musculoskeletal things have been a major cause of, of sick days. But looking at the numbers makes you really put this in perspective. I think in the US, they said that it was um, $88 billion per year is lost in, in um, work hours from people with back pain. I mean, that is yeah. astonishing. Though those figures apparently are not available in the UK yet. But even then, um, I was reading that over 30% of all GP visits, for example, are to do with back pain. So that begs the question, where is this problem coming from? Sure. And, and I think you're right that the, the, the numbers for the UK aren't available. We can look at some of the European countries and they seem to probably be quite relevant to, to the UK. Um, and it takes up a huge amount of, of GP's time. And, and um, so where it's coming from, it's a combination of things. Um, it's, a, it's around our lifestyles, our perhaps lack of activity, maybe the overdiagnosis of back pain, and there's a real kind of medicalization or even um, pathologization, I don't know that's a word, but that's where we, we treat back pain as a, as, a, as a disease rather than a kind of functional self-limiting problem. And so 
it, it, it's coming from a range of factors which are, which are kind of driving its prevalence. I mean, if you look at the increase, if you look at how much money is spent on ergonomics and lifting advice around in companies and big corporations, the expenditure has gone right up. So with, you know, companies are spending money on you know, fancy chairs and experts coming in trying to arrange desks and computers and teaching workers how to lift. But despite that expenditure, the, the prevalence or the epidemiology of back pain is going up. So we're getting more back pain despite you know, being super cautious around some of these postural or physical factors. So we know that back pain is, is largely, it's a real kind of combination of different factors, whether it's physical factors or social factors or psychological factors. So I think it's, so, so they'll all be driving this, this increase in, in um, appearance in, in terms of the statistics. So um, from your perspective, from the, from the patients that you see walk in through the door every day, what, what is a primary driver? I mean, there's a lot of myths around what causes back pain. You just elucidated that's not, yeah. it's clearly not solely just from posture or whatever. What, what's your hypothesis? So uh, I don't have a real personal one. I have a hypothesis from the literature. So what we know with back pain, um, it, it's very hard to pin down the cause. And we've got some of the most sensitive imaging equipment we've ever had. Uh, currently MRI scanning and we can see you know minute detail in the spine and yet what we see on an MRI scan any signs of damage or um, kind of uh, age-related changes in the in the back so wearing and tearing damage to the discs they they correspond very poorly with pain so we know that people that have back pain um, a very large proportion won't have any damage in the true sense in the back. And this is why it becomes perplexing with back pain because we can't really see any, any pathology as such. You know, we can't, if we, appendicitis, there's a kind of a target, you know, organ or disease, the appendix is inflamed, it's pretty gammy and you can remove it. With back pain, it's not so simple. So in terms of where, so the patients that I see, I live in, a, I, I work, I live in, in Northwest London, my clinic's in Belsex Park, and invariably the patients that I see will be different to um, you know, clinics that are in Southeast London and, and with different kind of social demographic population. But I think I see patients who are very worried about their backs. I think, you know, I think that's probably the same um, across the board in, in the UK and probably the Western world. We're kind of back phobic and we're quite concerned that we have to sit up straight and we have to have perfect posture and we have to lift carefully. So I think largely there's a, I think what's common, uh, what we know and what the evidence tells us is that people are, are largely very worried about their backs. And the evidence says we don't really need to worry too much about our backs and worrying in itself is a predictor of, of persistent back pain. So what causes the pain? I mean, <laughs> we just keep coming back to Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, so so, what, what's prob so it, it, what's probably causing the pain in an acute episode of back pain, so you, you're fine one day and you wake up in the morning and your back's sore, there's, there's probably sensitivity around some of the soft tissues around the back and we could name them um, anatomically but it's not it's largely just an academic um, purpose but some of the soft tissues and the ligaments some of the joint structures become a bit sore so that's a bit like a sprained ankle a good way to conceptualize common acute back pain where there's been some sprain there's some strain unlikely any damage in in the true sense but the area is sensitive and it's sore to move, it's sore to bend, it's sore to twist, and it's probably quite sore to touch or to, to be pushed upon by a practitioner. So that's quite, we can kind of understand that. We know that that's, there's a, it's quite a, a relatively linear path between, you know, strain, sprain, and then there's experience of pain. In some patients, uh, maybe 30, 40% of patients, despite the tissues healing and there being kind of resolution of the, the small damage, people still, still experience that pain. And so that's when we fall into a category of patient or category of back pain, kind of persistent pain or chronic pain, which is much more centrally generated. It's much more influenced by stress and lifestyle factors. So it sensitizes the brain. And um, that's when applying a very mechanical or biomedical um, approach to treating it largely fails actually so but that's a race it's a small proportion of patients most patients if they are relatively well educated about their back pain and they keep moving and they don't worry too much about it they'll kind of whiz through back pain in you know a small number of weeks and be back gardening or doing whatever they can so what you're saying is that the majority of issues are really more acute rather than chronic 
Yeah, I mean, chronic, chronic back pain, there's, we call episodic back pain where people have acute episodes, so it goes up, then it resolves, and it goes down, and that's, you know, sometimes the analogy of a cold has been used with back pain. We're, always, we're all going to get colds. It's very hard to prevent getting a cold, despite washing our hands and staying away from sick toddlers and that kind of stuff. Um, we still get colds, and once we get a cold, we rarely run to the GP or to A&E, but we self-manage it, and we have to accept that we're going to continue to get colds forever, and there's just a sensible way of thinking about you know, when we get a cold, we don't suddenly think we've got leukemia. We don't catastrophize and overly worry. We don't you know, um, be overly vigilant. We're just going to manage it. And then it drops after a few days. And we're okay, for a few months, we might get another one. And back pain is lar- should largely be conceptualized like that, that having a sore back is kind of part of being a sentient being with a brain which experiences changes in, internally and changes our environment and most of the time we can we can get through it without much intervention without much medical intervention and probably much without much other you know therapies intervention either we can usually manage it pretty well ourselves right right i was talking recently to um, um a friend and colleague of mine who's a, a chiropractor saying that one of the problems that she's experienced um in terms of people's posture being off is she said it's sort of inevitable because there's so much musculature at the front of the body that pulls us forwards and round but there isn't the equivalent parallel musculature to sort of straighten us back out and she said you know if you could imagine like a four-legged animal the fact that they actually put pressure on their on their uh, shoulder girdle pushes that back but because we're on two legs and we don't have that that pressure that 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 sort of causes over time this rounding forward do, do you agree with that what, what's your opinion on something um, like that it, so it's difficult when you look at the factors that, that seem to predict back pain relatively reliably postures is a very poor predictor so we can't predict who gets back pain by looking at the shape of their spines and that's, that's just so surprising coming, that's really surprising. That comes, I know I'm coming from a profession which spends his life looking at people's spines <laughs> um, but we know but we know that the, the note you know, and there's the evidence is quite clear now that posture is a very weak predictor of back pain and but all the, many of the professions whether it's, whether it's osteopathy or chiropractic or physiotherapy or other bodywork therapies are obsessed with posture and they're obsessed with the shape of the spine the truth is that Static posture doesn't predict back pain. It's a very poor predictor. And even once you, even if it was the main uh, cause or one of the main factors, there's not much you can do to change posture. It's kind of ingrained in our physical structure and it's ingrained in our in our brain. You know, we kind of we. It's very hard to change. So I don't spend much time worrying about posture. Um, it makes almost no difference um, to an outcome, and also you can't change posture. So posture is not very important according to the evidence with that said if you're in one posture or one position for a long time inevitably certain tissues and muscles will get a bit sore and so that's and that's a bit like if i sellotaped your arm to your head uh, your shoulder would become a bit sore for a while and so what we know is that variability in posture is a really good thing so advice around getting people to to change their position when they're sitting when they're working um, certainly don't have, not this notion of avoiding a slump posture or a rounded posture um, is a bit of a fallacy. So that's a perfectly acceptable position to, to sit or stand in, but just vary it up. So you're slumping a bit, you're slouching, you're upright a bit. Um, so posture is really, and I think the, the, the problem with enforcing the belief that posture is important with back pain is that it, it means that patients are, again, overly vigilant and overly um, anxious and overly aware of their posture. And it's really that it's not going to help them in the long term. There's not much you can do about it. So the minute you say to someone, sit up straight or put your shoulders back, they'll do it for about five seconds, then they'll slump back down. So there are many other factors which are much stronger to address according to the evidence, such as our levels of sleep, our levels of activity, our levels of stress, various kind of social, emotional things which might be modifiable or not. Um, exercise these are much more important things to, to think about and to address rather than someone's a shape the shape of someone's spine so it's patients are often really anxious and they come in they go, i know i've got bad posture and they're often relieved when i say that you know their posture is entirely normal and not to worry about it and the evidence tells us not to worry about it and um 
the evidence tells us that worrying about it or practitioners spending lots of time on these very biomechanical um, constructs with patients isn't helpful. It actually makes it quite a bit worse in some cases. So nocebo effect, you mean? That they are it's totally nocebo, yeah. And the words associated with posture and asymmetry and this shoulder's higher and that hips a bit higher and you're a bit scoliotic there. These are, A, probably quite untrue. B, if they are true, they're largely associated with being a normal human, which is asymmetrical, and that's just the way we de they've developed. And C, if they are present, they probably have no relationship with the patient's pain. You know, it's, it's the patient would have had pain with the same looking back, you know, four weeks before, and the back will look exactly the same. So getting to educating patients, and there's lots of evidence now around kind of pain education or neuroscience education with patients, getting them to understand a bit more what, about what pain is, that it's an experience created by the brain and is influenced by lots of different things rather than just how your back looks or how your spine is shaped. I find what you're saying is actually super reassuring because I mean, I'm certainly falling into the camp of one of those people who punishes myself miserably for never getting enough exercising or having a bad posture or whatever, whatever. And in actual fact, you, what you say makes perfect sense because I mean, no human body is actually perfect. And if that's what it took to be pain free, then there'd be hardly anybody who's pain free. So there is a lot of tolerance in the structure and the form of our bodies. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think there's, and the, the body's totally adaptable. You know, if, they, if we weren't adaptable, there wouldn't be the Paralympics. You know, the Paralympics <laughs> exists because people are running with one leg or with one arm or swimming with no legs. And if you look at the adaptions that the body makes um, in those circumstances, they're incredible. So the bodies are totally, you know, pliable, adaptable. Um, entity and a slightly twisted pelvis or you know a, which is probably not twisted but a creation in the practitioner's mind actually um, has you know it's, it's minuscule there's minuscule asymmetry that the body can handle without without in a heartbeat um, and so most of these ideas around around in my profession osteopathy where we are where we are and, and I think chiropractic and physical therapy to some extent we're obsessed with the structure. We're obsessed with how the, how the body is shaped and the vertebra. These all emerged in a time when the professions evolved, you know, developed in the turn of the last century, so the late 1800s, when that's kind of what we thought was important around back pain. We thought it was, you know, that we thought that the, the vertebra and their alignment, we thought they were crucial to healthy back. We now know through kind of reams a century of research that it's just not the case. And we need to let those ideas go and be much more, and comfortable working with the person as a human being rather than just a back or a vertebra or a connection of vertebra. So um, it should, we should all be reassured. I mean, the, the evidence for back pain is, is brilliant. For, for benign, normal, non-specific back pain, about 90% of people get better without any treatment. I mean, it's just, it's, it's all good news with back pain. Um, unless we see a therapist that then says you're asymmetrical, you're twisted, this is tight, this is long. You better do some course ability and have 35 sessions with me. Um, you've got to be really careful because your back's really, you know, it's not right. Something's out of place. And invariably that, that creates really unhelpful beliefs in the patient, which then changes their behavior, which we know there are certain behaviors and beliefs which are quite strong predictors of, of long-term back pain. So it's really all about now, as you said, reassuring the patient. And most, most of the time patients are overly concerned, which is perpetuated by us all of us and the medical profession and all the different allied health professions associated with with msk care so we should all be reassured wonderful so when a, a patient walks into your into your office and and sits yeah. down um what would be your approach i mean obviously there's a clear difference between um an injury um an acute condition and and just a general sort of nagging I have backache or I have headaches or whatever, whatever. Yeah. So if you have this more general um, non-injury based type of, of patient, what, what's your approach? How do you pick this all apart? Yeah, I think, I think the first thing is just to make sure that the type of back pain they're experiencing is really in that, in that category of non-specific, non-pathological back pain. There isn't any referral from any organs. They're not having some aortic aneurysm, something horrible which requires you know, urgent referral or, or referred back to the uh, medical professional. Um, and I reckon we can do that, you know, looking at these red flags, and, you know, there's a, a few which are quite reliable. We can do that through a case history, so talking to the patient about their symptoms, 
how they developed, some of the, the factors that increased the pain or decreased it. So we get a sense of maybe the first question I have is, is this patient you know, seriously unwell? Um, and delaying referral will be unhelpful for them. But once I'm comfortable that it is a very musculoskeletal presentation, then I really want to understand what, how the pain developed, what they think going on with their own back, what are some of their beliefs about back pain? As I said, these pain beliefs are quite strong predictors of, of recovering for back pain. And so I want to know what they think is going on, what um, their, uh, whether there's any particular concern or anxiety around their back pain. I obviously want to know the type of back pain, whether there's any pain into the leg or, or any symptoms that suggest that there's some involvement to the nerves around the back, the sciatic nerve, those kind of things. So, but even with that, I, I really want to get a, a feeling of why they're here, what their, you know, what their beliefs are, how they're behaving with their back pain. Are they being particularly cautious with it? Are they really guarding the back? Um, and get a sense of their experience. You know, what, what are they experiencing? What are their concerns? And, and you know, what the kind of their journey is. Well, often patients would have been, often, but um, it's not unusual that patients have been to different therapists and they've been to their GP or they've been to their chiropractor, they've been to their consultant and they said this and they said that. I want to try and unpick some of those those beliefs and where they came from and try and correct some of the beliefs if I can. It's not always easy. They're often ingrained culturally and socially and it's hard to, to change. But I just want to get a sense of where they are and what they think and what they can't do. Why are they here to see me if they've had back pain in the past? What is it now that brings them to my clinic? Um, and it might, it might be something like, well, it's just gotten... I've, I've just, I'm just really worried, or this time's different, or I really want to go water riding with my son, but I'm worried I might hurt my back. So I kind of want to know, the, the, obviously about their pain, but the context of that pain. Right. And what kind of modalities do you actually employ then? Um, do you, I mean, physical modalities, you, you're an osteopath, so at some point, you know, there is a laying on of hands. <laughs> um, it's not all a, a, a purely a psychological exercise. So what sort of modalities do you use and why? That's a good question. So I think um, in, in manual therapy, actually not all of manual therapy, the laying on of hands is obviously a core part of the, of the definition of, of the professions. I think um, I do use kind of hands-on manual therapy. Um, the reason why I use it is probably quite different to how, well, it is quite different how, how I would use it when I graduated a few years ago. Um, I'm not so interested about moving specific parts of the body or really thinking about certain sections of the back or particular muscles. I'm very much interested in getting patients to, to expose patients to movement and so particularly if patients come in and they're quite you know they're, they're, it's sore when they bend forward or they're quite worried about bending forward exposing them to bending forward by using my hands when they're on the, the couch to, to move them into that position can be quite a helpful um, experience to expose them to so i'll use some hands-on manual therapy move them around try and desensitize the area um, you know, using some mobilization techniques, maybe some soft tissue techniques, but largely it's, 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 it is that, but what's clear now um, is much more of a conversation around pain and back pain and using the manual therapy or using the hands-on as a kind of conduit to explore some of the experiences. So when I, if I'm poking or feeling around someone's back, I want to know how it feels to them. And then if they say, oh, that really hurts, well, that's really, you know, really worried about that area there. I want to, yeah, I can create some reassurance. I can say, well, when it hurts, I can give them some explanation about why it hurts, which is more helpful and more reassuring to, than their current belief that their back is going to fall apart or something like that. So uh, the hands-on the hands -on has a slightly different, um, a more kind of psychological focus than just moving mechanical bits like a robot to, you know, to, to loosen up the, the hinges um, and that's probably where the literature the evidence is at with manual therapy there is a there are some bio, short-term biomechanical effects but actually using them in the context of a kind of biopsychosocial model it seems to be more 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 powerful the effects seem to be, be stronger but i'm also quite happy not to do any manual therapy for some patients that they just it's not warranted and they just want to have a discussion around their back pain and educate them around back pain it's not often that happens um, but if they're happy to, I'm, I'm happy to, to have that conversation with them. 
what about on the other hand sort of like when you really do have somebody who has an injury I, actually i would expect that if somebody's in a very acute phase of injury they're not going to end up in your office anyway it'll be sort of like the fact that an acute injury perhaps is, is still going on and didn't get better like if somebody ruptures a disc or herniates a disc they're not going to come to you straight away they probably end up first in the hospital probably should come to you first but no, yeah i mean they, they should, they should what, definitely what make a, yeah so so just a bit about rupturing discs so the the the, the facts around discs the disc slip discs and prolapse discs we know that it's, it's quite normal. So if we take a hundred, you know, there's been some really big studies where they've taken MRI images of, you know, tens of thousands of people that have no back pain. Okay, these are people who are living fulfilling pain-free lives, or at least in their back. And if you scan MRI scan people's backs, above the age of 30, from the age of 30, you know, it progressively goes up, um, about, you know, up to 80% people have damage to the discs but they have no back pain so the the notion that that back pain is caused by there's a very clear kind of a linear causality between disc injury and pain just doesn't exist we it, it's almost it's more unusual not to have a prolapse disc um once we reach the age of kind of you know, 30 40 50 so that's so, and often patients come in, I think I've got a slip disc, or they, they've had an MRI scan, and they say, I've, I've got an MRI scan, it shows we've got a prolapse disc at whatever part of the back. What's often the case was, is that that prolapse disc, that snapshot of their spine, is, the spine has been like that for 10 years, and they've suddenly developed back pain, but it, it's just a coincidence, if you like, that you know, the, the disc is probably, the disc injury probably isn't contributed to their pain. In some cases it is, but but we know that, as I was saying, back pain is it's complex, it's multifactorial. There isn't, it's very, it's very difficult to pinpoint a single tissue. In some patients there are. So in some patients they have back pain and you do some surgery to the disc and the pain is gone. But in a vast majority of patients, that's not the case. And so if someone comes into me with acute back pain, having a, the, the current NICE guidelines recommend not to scan anyone if you're quite happy that it's just a non-specific not even so the severity of pain doesn't drive my decision to do a scan or anything like that it's really about a scan is only useful if you're thinking about changing the treatment so if you're really thinking about having surgery then a scan might be helpful but just scanning someone's back just because they've got back pain um generally predicts a worse outcome because they see the scan the scan reads like the worst kind of shopping list you can imagine about your spine it's damage here wear and tear there and there's good evidence now to show that that changes people's beliefs about their back pain. It changes their behavior. They worry more. They have a far worse um, expectation of recovery. So they think, I'll never get better with this pain. You know, this will, I better not exercise. I better not take some time off work. And funny enough, they do much worse in the long term. Um, so scanning now, is, we've all been overscanned, particularly in the private sector. So um, I don't know how I've gone scanning. But uh, we don't need to scan unless we unless we think there's something serious going on that needs some surgical opinion but most cases of disc injury prolapse discs can be managed perfectly well with conservative treatment exercise keep active not worrying too much the odd trip to the osteopath or chiropractor or physiotherapy physiotherapist as long as they don't construct really unhelpful beliefs in those patients that's the problem right so that was going to be my next question is, um, I mean, from, from speaking to you, I have a totally different feeling about backache than I did, you know, Good. minutes ago, because yeah. you, you've totally changed the, the way I think about it. I mean, you're saying primarily it's all good. And yeah, it's painful, but you know, no more so than maybe, a, as you said, a cold or whatever. So yeah, or a sprain or a sprained ankle. And, and, and you know, back, there are patients out there that have, huge you know, high levels of distress and high levels of disability and i'm not trivializing their experience at all they're in a you know very unhealthy very um you know it, it's an awful experience uh, so i'm not i'm not um uh, belittling or trivializing their experience but what's often the case is that you know that they uh, they've been poorly managed you know, and i have patients that have come in that have had you know several injections into the back you know privately with the health insurers and they're just no better you know they've they've been they've had 20 sessions with therapist x manual therapist x they've been to the consultant they've had you know, 
three injections a year for the last three years, and yet they're still in huge amounts of pain. And so we know that targeted treatments to the back, you know, to the to to the the kind of biological tissues, is is often not helpful in back pain because it really is a it's a great example of a of a psychos or biopsychosocial issue where there are lots of factors that are driving this pain experience. And once we see pain as an experience, i.e. something which occurs in the brain, and we know that, that can be modulated or changed by a load of factors which are non-physical, once we accept that that's what pain is, then taking a very mechanical approach to pain doesn't seem to, to help. You know? So we've got to be, all of us, much more aware and much more skilled, actually, of managing back pain. And, and whilst I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a, a, a psychologist, you've got some sensitivity around the back in some of these areas, but this will resolve over the next few weeks. Keep moving. Um, we have this great mantra now in pain science called hurt doesn't equal harm, which is lovely, lovely expression. And, and we use, I use it with patients to say that when you're feeling pain, when you're bending or twisting or exercising, that's not harmful. And that's not, that's not your spine being damaged, but rather it's some sensitivity of some of the tissues, which will resolve the more you move, the more you bend, the more you stretch. So we know that this fear avoidance behavior, i.e. when people are scared to move because of the pain or they're, they're worried that they'll do further damage to their back if they move. Um, we know that we, the literature tells us that people that display those characteristics do much worse actually in the long term. So the first thing is to get people to, to be confident and happy to move and that works by reassuring them and addressing some of these maladaptive beliefs. Right. So once you've established with a with a client that that there's uh, that the pain itself is is more of an issue than than the back problem, the pain just happens to have localized in the back, perhaps. Yeah. Um, if that's a potential way of looking at it. So, you said yourself you're not a therapist or a counselor. So what's your approach? How do you support those those patients? So, um, I want to so I firstly find out what why really what their goal is, what they want to do. What are their expectations? What they if they're expecting just to be to be pain free forever, and they'll never experience back pain again, then that they'll have to we'll have a discussion around this, some of those expectations. Um, but largely, it's a mixture of manual therapy, getting them to move and using my hands to to, to move their bodies around. And as they if they're feeling uh, if they're experiencing pain on those movements, I'll be quite quick to have at, at the same time is talking to them about why it's sore and providing reassuring explanation why it's sore not if their perception is when they're when i'm moving them that their disc is pushing on their nerve i'm i know that's probably not the case so i need to try and construct a helpful way for them to look at their pain and then it's trying to get them to it's depending how what their levels of well, self-efficacy how confident they feel to manage their problem themselves and if they feel that they need uh, if they feel happy just to, to to go off and start doing some exercise or they they've been exercising anyway but they but they've rested for a few for a few weeks i will be quite happy to tell them to, to get back on it and not worry too much about damaging the back and it's actually really quite helpful to move the back um so it's a mixture of manual therapy which is a kind of occurs in the background but at the foreground now at least in my current practice it's very much around having conversations with patients usually while i'm doing the manual therapy so i'm not manual therapy is as i said a kind of it's a way in, if you like, to have a conversation with the patient. And, you know, patients come to osteopaths or they come to me because they expect some hands-on. And if I just sat there in a chair and just said, well, tell me about your pain, you know, the relationship with your mum and your brothers, they would, they would, that wouldn't meet their expectations. So I've got to do something. I've got to meet some of those expectations around hands-on and move them around and do some gentle manipulation, which is fine. I'm happy to do that. But there's lots of other things that we could all do um, which help patients with back pain. So what would your be your recommendations for the best way a person should live? You know, a, a back-friendly lifestyle. Um, we know backs love to sleep. You know, they, you know we, they love sleep and they love to be rested and the brain loves to sleep. And we know that this, we know that our level up, we know that, you know, we can track um, pain uh, thresholds. So that the level at which um, some stimulus becomes painful, we can track those with the levels of sleep. You know, there's good evidence now to say the worse sleep we get, the more, more likely we are to experience kind of non-specific pain. So if people are not sleeping for a range of reasons, you know, work, family, stress, kind of things, and they've got back pain, then 
you know, adopting kind of healthy sleep habits, whatever they may be, not looking at their, you know, iPhones and various kind of uh, tricks to try and get them to, to get into more um, um, healthy sleep pattern. That's, you know, one thing. So you know, I'll have a conversation with them, which I can have during the manual therapy about some of these factors, which I, and just see if they kind of begin to um, build a picture of why this individual is feeling, is currently experiencing pain or not recovering from their back. And it might be sleep, it might be levels of stress, it might be levels of activity, it might be a lack of variability in, in posture at work, they might just be sitting in one position and you know, advising to you know, stand up, jump around, move around every half an hour, change the position that they have, um, getting them to conceptualize their pain differently, not being so worried or threatened by pain um, is often just in itself. You know, the, the, the meaning we have, the meaning we attribute to pain often influences our reaction to it. So if I, you're feeling back pain and I say to you, oh, Tatiana, that back pain is caused by your three fractured vertebra. You've got to be really careful. I mean, you're going to inherently change that emotional response, but also change your behavior, how you act with that pain. You won't bend, you won't move. Whereas if I say to you, actually, this is just some sensitivities to the tissues, there's no real damage here. It's perfectly safe to move. It's not, it's not a pleasant experience, granted, but it, it's, actually, it's actually quite good to move. Your behavior will change. Your beliefs will begin to change. So it's, um, nowadays, it's about really undoing bad work by other healthcare professionals. Which have, uh, and that's, you know, I was one of those, those people, too. Um, so there needs to be a real paradigm shift in this. I mean, in, in The Lancet the, this year, actually, there was three kind of real seminal, three big papers were written in The Lancet about back pain. And they're great for any re, uh, listeners listening. Um, they're kind of some of the key or the key research in back pain from the UK, the States, and throughout the world. They've really set the the what's the word? Kind of set the scene or set the challenge around. We're all managing back pain poorly. All of us doing a bad job. You know, there and there are some clear things we now know about back pain. One of which that solely biomechanical or biomedical or kind of biological treatments largely fail. And not just fail, but actually they make things quite a bit worse. So we all need to change our how we conceptualize back pain, and that will change how we treat it and diagnose it and begin to manage it. Um, and interesting, we also know that our own, as clinicians, as, as therapists, what we think about uh, back pain, our patients will also think the same. So there are, you know, we influence patients' beliefs massively. So if I think your back is due to three, you know, out of place vertebra, you'll likely think the same. And so we need to begin to change therapist beliefs around back pain and that should hopefully have a knock-on effect with patients. So that very much influences the way that a practitioner or a therapist actually interacts with their patient and the language that they use. I mean, we know that yeah. in very many, you know, I'm a hypnotherapist, so I, I know the power of, of suggestion. Um, I feel that a lot of medical colleagues do not. Um, yeah. You're obviously clearly very aware of that. So, um, a lot of the listeners that we have are also therapists in very different fields and different flavors. And obviously back problems, migraines, head problems um, are a very large proportion of the clients that we see. So what would be your recommendation in terms of you, how, how you actually interact with the client so that you don't reinforce these negative beliefs? Sure, sure. And I think, I think um, it's firstly understanding... So the way I speak to each patient will be different. That's the first thing. There isn't a kind of single script that you can that you can give to better use for patients. But I think, firstly, to say that when we're talking about this non-specific back pain or this backache, and even if that even if even if that's with an MRI which showing showing a ruptured disc, it's the same approach. Using language which is reassuring, and this reassurance isn't just some um, hope that there isn't any damage or but actually the evidence says that patients with ruptured discs or this kind of low back pain the prognosis is excellent so we know that's the first thing i'll present with them this just the facts that in your case it's very likely you'll get better really quite quickly and that's what the evidence tells us but in terms of language I'll, instead of using I'll, i won't any i'll use language any language i can which doesn't imply structural damage to the to the to the back or to the spine so i'll try not to use the word damage I'll try not to point out any, if there's any observational cues I, I notice with them, such as their posture or some um, illusion around asymmetry, I won't point those out because they're not relevant. And they're often quite unhelpful for patients to have a very structural view of their back pain. 
Um, I use, I think a really nice word to use is sensitivity rather than damage at the back. So it, it, you know, rather than saying some of the muscles here or the disc is a bit damaged, it's much less, um, much more reassuring and less, much less threatening to say some of the tissues around the back are, are, are sensitive, a bit like a sunburn or, you know, if you remember when you sprained an ankle as a child, there's some soreness around the, the, the muscles and the, and the ankle. And so using, you know, just thinking about, and there's some, quite a few papers this year actually on language and change, you know, changing expressions with less threatening um, positive expressions. So sensitive is a good one. Um, explaining to them that when they're feeling pain, that it's not damage, but it's just muscles and tissues undergoing a bit of stretch and a bit of strain and that it's perfectly normal. And it's part of that healing process actually to keep moving. So just really trying to reduce their anxiety um, around their pain, which, because ultimately I want patients to behave, you know, their beliefs predict their behavior and their behavior predicts recovery. So if I can get patients to think positively about their back pain, then their behavior changes. They'll use their back, they'll bend the back, they'll go to the gym, you know, they'll, they'll go back to work, they'll lift up their dog or their cat. And that activity, that change in behavior um, is healthy for the back. The, back. the muscles begin to stretch and to move and the joints move around, the, the sensitivity of the back kind of reduces. Um, so it's about changing some of those behaviors through language. And, and conversely, if I, you know, I, if I use inappropriate language or quite threatening language, it has the opposite effect, that patients become overly guarded and protective and rigid and they're worried about bending or twisting. Um, and so in some cases, acute pain, patients can't move. It's perfectly fine to not move so much for the first couple of days, but I really want to move through that kind of protective phase quite quickly and try and get them to, to relax the back and not worry too much about it. We all spend too much time thinking about the back. <laughs> yeah, because they hurt. <laughs> they sort they of hurt, scream yeah. attention, you know, they scream for They attention. hurt. And, yeah, and they, they do hurt. And, and it, it's, you know, the, the, I think the, the current evidence says that the strongest predictor of back pain is our activity levels and the activity physical activity and exercise is a is immense in terms of in terms of looking at the effect size in the clinical trials of looking at exercise versus manual therapy or versus drugs or anything else exercise just beats everything hands down and so whatever we can do to get patients to exercise that's what we should be doing and if patients are currently not exercising because they're worried about their back or they're worried that lifting or bending or lifting at the gym is going to be unhelpful, or they're choosing exercises that just you know, core stability because they've got some belief that that's going to stabilize their back. Um, these are kind of unhelpful attitudes to have. So all of our interventions should all be geared towards how do we get people moving in as, as freely and as unconscious and as, and as confident um, way as possible without them worrying about their backs. We're all... We're all overly anxious about backs and if you look at if you look if you look at children you know, i've got a four-year-old look at the way he moves when he's bending he's not he's not he, one thing he's definitely not thinking about is his back he's thinking about dinosaurs and i don't know trucks and it's kind of us as society which all built up this phobia around back around spine and backs and core stability and keeping everything stable and asymmetry and disc prolapses and so the evidence now is quite clear that we were, we were all wrong I, I never knew that I thought that's, that's amazing that's, this entire interview has been a complete um, um, you know profit for me just in knowing that piece of information because this information is clearly not very well I mean I consider myself a pretty well-informed person and I was not aware of any of what you've said today yeah. um, you know why is that why is that information not out there yeah it's, it's coming on there's been a couple of on the back of those three Lancet papers that came out this year a couple of the mainstream press so the Guardian the Telegraph and even the Mail surprised me or surprised me um, picked up on this and they said we've all been wrong with back pain and they kind of summarized those three papers quite well um, Must have missed but yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're in there. I think it was maybe a month or two ago, and they gave much more evidence-based information to, to patients or to, to the readers about back pain. Um, I, I don't know why it's not changing. I think it's it's slowly changing. I, I still see stuff on social media and you know, videos pop up, which makes me wish want to, you know, poke my eyes out. Um, <laughs> You know, people sitting holding a, a plastic vertebra and describing back pain in terms of 
joints out of place or damaged discs or things that are really in contradiction to the evidence and are totally unhelpful for patients. Yeah. And so I'm quite passionate about changing beliefs. So I get quite annoyed, quite frustrated that practitioners don't, um, aren't aware of some of the evidence and for whatever reason, or they're aware of the evidence, but perpetuate the model of kind of disability, which is financially profitable for them. Because if you've got a, if your back is, if your back pain is due to bad posture or an asymmetric spine or whatever it is, and the fix is to see a therapist that does some wizardry with their hands or with work, you know, that's a, a good business model. You know, that, that works quite well. And we, I, you know, I see patients that have been to many different professional groups, different professions, not, and who spent a fortune fortune on treatment um, and it's a waste of money and if anything it's been harmful because they've now got a very unhelpful conceptor in their back pain you've got to undo some of this stuff and say there is no vertebra out of place your body is your, your posture is totally normal it's within the realms of kind of normal human uh, structure pain is um, quite normal and it's influenced by a range of things and so it, it's you know it's um it's frustrating and it's not fair on patients okay so you talked about sleep and we talked yeah. about movement as being vitally important what about diet that's always a big thing these days nutrition are there any pro back things that you know i'm not aware of any i think that i think I, uh, no i'm not aware of any particular um supplements or anything which can target the back if we were going to go through the range of factors which are involved with back pain Diet is might be, uh, and I'm, they're, they're likely more important factors to address rather than diet. But of course, you want if someone's got back pain, they're eating Mars bars and chips. Then it would be in the realm of any healthcare professional or therapist to advise them against that. And um, tying it to their back pain, I'm not familiar enough with the evidence to say you know Mars bars give you, you know, sensitize the nerves in your back. So I wouldn't go that far. But yes, yeah, sensible advice around diet would should be the something that we should all be applying actually to our practice right right if somebody wakes up one morning and they really do have yeah. a back problem and they've got to sit in a three-hour meeting whether they want to or not um i mean taking a mild pain relief you know i i was always told whenever you have back pain take ibuprofen because ibuprofen is also an anti-inflammatory so yeah. that's what's going to be more effective. Is that still good advice? If somebody just, yeah, know, so I, I, I'm going to correct your language. I'm going to correct your language there, back problem. <laughs> Sorry, back problem. <laughs> it's right, what do we call it? I mean, probably back pain's fine, but I think we don't want to, we even just, if a patient has got a problem with my back, it's probably a normal back, which is a bit sore. That makes right. sense. So, um, so yeah, in terms of medication, it's fine. I think current NICE guidelines, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence have guidelines, clinical guidelines, which are based on the evidence, the recent ones for back pain are 2016, so a couple of years old. And they, they advise anti-inflammatories, the ibuprofen, um, for that kind of you know, acute non-spirit back pain. Um, they advise against taking paracetamol. You know, it's not especially effective for, for back pain. And then there are the opioids, which um, your listeners might be aware is a big epidemic now in, in the US, where um, which GPs would generally prescribe if there's real significant pain or can what's called back-related leg pain or sciatica, so nerve pain for leg. And sometimes opioids can be useful, but again, I still think there's a tendency to be over-prescribed, actually. Right. But anything, anything. I think any medication is, is fine if it gets the, if it allows the patient to to move and to, to behave relatively normally. Um, then that's a good thing. So I'm more than happy to describe or suggest that patients should take an off-the-shelf ibuprofen for a short period, obviously. Great. Well, Oliver, thanks so much. I, I'm really I'm totally blown away by what you've said because I, I think that's, that's so um, encouraging for so many people because I know it's a major issue that back problems, um, discomfort, um, you know, it's, 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 it's universal and it's such good news to know that you could probably improve that by improving your lifestyle and not to yeah. worry about it so much when it happens, even though it's obviously uncomfortable and inconvenient during that yeah. short period of time. So I think that's, that's an absolute revelation for me and I thank you for it. Three little questions that I always ask all of my guests who come on. Um, 
the first one of which is the word health. How do you personally, for you, define the word health? I don't know. I remember hearing a definition say it's the absence of disease. Um, I guess thinking about it, if a patient is able to kind of express themselves and lead a fulfilling life without their, um, without kind of um, experience of suffering or pain or illness impeding them, then I guess they're healthy. So if, if a patient has significant back pain, but yet they're still able to enjoy life, to my mind, they're not unhealthy. And they are, you know, I, I think in terms of a kind of holistic view of health, it's got to be more than just the absence of pathology, I think. I think we now know that people have pathologies um, which which they live with. We've got kind of long-term functional conditions, whether it's, you know, whether it's um, kind of IBS or we've got people living with leukemia now for many, 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 many years you know, with their with their life um, expectancy up to the to the normal or the general population. So biologically, they might still have some leukemic cells, but they're living a fulfilling life. And so I think it's I think I think it's probably more than just the absence of pathology, but actually more of a kind of experiential. If they're enjoying life and able to be a leader, fulfilling life, then they're healthy. But that's just something I've just made up now. I've spoken to. I could be completely wrong, but that to me would be would be would be. Would be right. I think if we start to nitpick too much, we, you know, we would probably we'd all be unhealthy. Right, right. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I think it's different for everybody. Um, I, I I love the definition of actually one of my guests gave me, which is that the perfect good health is when you're kind of unaware of your body. And, yeah. You know, you just move through life effortlessly because none of it trips you up. And in fact, yeah. if you do notice it, it's only kind of in experiencing the pleasure of it. And I, I think that's a wonderful definition. Yeah, I think it's, and I'm going to steal that and use that. And I think, um, I think very people, I think it's also part of being, if you are awake, at times people will be aware of their symptoms. And it's about being, ha being accepting that awareness, if you like. So accepting that there's only certain things you can change. And part of it is being able to accept that these things be part of, of them and their lives and, and being able to still move through that. So I think, a com I think invariably people, you know, it, it's possible to be completely unaware, if, but actually accepting that awareness, that makes sense. So mm -hmm. if you've got, yeah, I think if, you, it's, if you've got significant back pain or symptoms, but getting those symptoms to a level where if the patient really thought about it, they would have those symptoms. But, they're, but where they're, they're at the level where they can just accept and manage them and, and continue through life. I think that's a... So if we, if we can get... If patients can be aware of their pain or their symptoms, but still live a fulfilling life, so mm -hmm. not having... The, those symptoms don't begin to impact their experience or they're not overly, you know, leading to significant disability, then I think they're also healthy. So, I mean... Just to sort of go back to the conversation a little bit, but I mean that that means that, that a lot of the, the clients and patients that you have really have to deal with long term pain and discomfort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and it's it's yes. I mean that's I think as I said back pain is normal. That's the first thing to recognise. It's normal to have back pain. The the level of that back pain and the frequency of that back pain can be influenced by some of these you know factors or interventions or exercises kind of things but even with that if someone leads a you know just a pristine life perfect exercise perfect diet and no stress it would be on you'd still expect them to have that pain you know, it's that common in a way and so what do we do we then classify them as unhealthy or, or they're they are they're they're healthy but they're experiencing pain so pain is quite a normal experience it's a it's a it's a normal reaction to the body, um, of the body, and it's I think pathologizing it, medicalizing it, and trying to um, treat it too in intrusively is maybe where we've or trying to find the problem using an MRI scan. But, you know, is where we've gone wrong, and we begin to to medicalize patients that really just have functional, largely short-term, albeit intermittent or episodic levels of pain which can be self-managed you know, themselves without the need to see anyone 
But that's it. I mean, there'll be patients that have chronic pain, persistent pain all the time for their whole lives, in which it's, the, the evidence says actually removing that experience of pain is really quite hard. You know, it's very hard to just to, if someone's got chronic back pain, but we can get the pain to a level which is acceptable and we can change some of their, um, you know, their kind of coping strategies and kind of mechanism by which they um, accept that pain and can function with it. So that's the, you know, that's the definition of chronic pain. You know, it's kind of slightly resistant to purely biomedical treatment. It requires a much more holistic approach. Right. So back to my three little questions mm -hmm. about happiness. How does Oliver make himself happy? <laughs> um, I think it's, um, it's a good question. I think from, you know, it, like, for me, it's balance. You know, I have a young family, I run a business. I try and make, I think where I'm probably happier now professionally is, is practicing or working as an osteopath in a, in a way which is ethical and, and, and uh, kind of congruent with the, the evidence around back pain. So I think some of, in my declaration is that much of the, lots of the models and theories in manual therapy including osteopathy are quite traditional quite archaic and not informed by the evidence and i was quite comfortable quite unhappy when i was practicing in the first you know three quarters of my career and it was hard to 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 bridge the traditional approaches in osteopathy with the current evidence and i've kind of gotten to a place now where i can practice as a as an osteopath in, in a way which I think is helpful, genuinely helpful to patients. And it makes me feel good because I'm not deceiving them or pretending I'm doing things which I'm just not. Um, and, and it's hopefully helpful. And the evidence tells me that my approach seems to be the current best way to manage back pain. It's certainly not perfect, but it seems to be better than, than um, previous ways. So yeah, I've kind of slightly avoided the question. <laughs> But I, I found it's like a happier way to practice, which I think is more, it's more fulfilling, but also more ethical and, and um, makes more sense. And is helping people, I hope. Wonderful. And what about serenity? I always um, say that serenity is a word that's much underused because even in this hectic life that we lead all rushing around, sometimes we forget that we just need to turn the noise down and find that quiet place inside. Do you have any practices that you follow or things that you do throughout your day that just let you <sighs> yeah I, yeah I probably not I have, um my three-year-old son likes to climb on top of me when i have those moments um <laughs> no i have a commute so i have a i listen to podcasts listen to music i think you know run through my head i don't practice anything i you know, like everyone else i can think about things of mindfulness that seems I'm not sure why I haven't got around to doing that, but um, no, nothing structured. Um, I I kind of take the the time that I have to myself um, to to you know to kind of collect my thoughts and to. But I'm often reading articles and trying to digest some of this information. So and I need a holiday. I haven't had one yet. Sounds like a bit. I I prescribe one. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm glad that your beliefs map to my beliefs. That's excellent. That's absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Oliver, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I've, I've no, my pleasure. totally blown away by this conversation because I think it just had, you know, it, it, it contains some really critical information, which is, um, yeah, just to lighten up about the whole thing and not worry about it so much yeah. and, and just look after your body um, and, and, and your health in general rather than, key in on this this one spot yeah mm. i can put I'm, and i haven't plugged anything but I, I with a colleague of mine i we have a we're starting a venture called um think move live which is really about educating health professionals around some of these things so trying to address some of these misconceptions around musculoskeletal pain but predominantly back pain and we run short courses where people can um we, we speak about the evidence around back pain and strategies to really try and um, that you can apply with patients and that might involve how you communicate a diagnosis to patients, how you communicate your treatment to patients, how you communicate some of their fears and, and kind of try and address some of these, these unhelpful beliefs. So it's hugely important that we're trying to change the world one, one short course at a time. Wonderful. Um, I totally acknowledge your work. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. I'm you know, always in favour of a holistic approach and uh, 
and you know getting away from dogmas when they just don't fit anymore i think it's very brave to make that step and uh, yeah. i honor you for doing that so keep keep going um we'll put down at the end of the podcast notes how people sure. can get in touch with you perhaps if some of those courses we can have a little bit of information about where to go and find those and uh leaves me not only to say thanks very much and um hopefully speak to you again very soon and thank you wonderful thank you tatiana so dear listeners i hope that you enjoyed that episode with oliver as much as i did i think it was so important to learn that so much backache is actually a completely normal thing and perhaps more a reflection of a lack of exercise a lack of good sleep and um just generally not so much taking care of ourselves is actually something which is pathological and something we need to worry about. It is an alarm call though for taking care of your whole body and your mind, your mind, your body and your spirit. So until next time, just to encourage you once again, please rate, review us on iTunes Check out our Facebook page. We have every episode is pinned there with all the respective links for all different types of devices. From there, you can also get onto our mailing list if you would like to go through an episode without having to stop and take notes every couple of minutes because we do that for you. We provide you with extended podcast notes if you become a London Heel Insider. Stay tuned for next week's episode, and until then, as always, wishing you health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>